Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. I am Diana Kander, here to answer the question, is everything okay with you? I've been getting a lot of messages from people who are like, you're spending a lot of time on failure this season. Is there anything you want to share? Anything you, you want to divulge? And the answer is that I was asked by a university to help them create a course on failure, which is an incredibly thoughtful move on their part. Uh, the semester is just wrapped up and the students walked away with incredible learnings and ways to move forward. And I scheduled each one of these episodes as a way to dive deeper into the topics that were explored by the course course. And today's episode is so, so special because what has been lauded as one of the greatest failures in product history, New Coke, I know you've heard of it, is actually an incredible story of the greatest pivot of all time and incredible financial success that happened as a result. It's just that most people, you know, they hear the story, New Coke, greatest failure, let's move on. And they don't get curious enough to explore what actually happened. So today I'm interviewing Sergio Zyman, the former chief marketing officer of Coca-Cola and the creator of New Coke. Here's seven things you have to know about Sergio, who I believe might be the most interesting man alive. He was named one of the top three marketing pitchmen of the 20th century by Time Magazine. He not only created New Coke, which we'll talk about today, but also Diet Coke, Cherry Coke, and Coke Classic. He was influential in the positioning and development of strategy that resulted in the election of former Mexican President Vicente Fox. He left Coca-Cola for the first time in 1988, about three years after the launch of New Coke because of new leadership, and was actually persuaded to come back in 1993 to hold the first chief marketing officer position in any company. Sergio reconceptualized the company's marketing strategy and boosted annual sales from nine to 15 billion cases a year, the most explosive growth in the company's history. And he is the author of four books, including the international bestseller, The End of Marketing as We Know It. Sergio and I get into some really incredible topics, specifically the story of New Coke and how it's this incredible story of the best corporate pivot of all time, which was not a failure, but actually a great success. Why innovation is a lazy move for most companies how companies develop blind spots. And then we debate this assumption that I've held for a long time that marketing is a penalty you pay for having a product that doesn't solve a problem. And I say this to one of the greatest marketing pitchmen, and you'll get to listen to how he responds. Before we start the show, please take a second to rate and review this episode. Tell me what you thought about it. I'm so excited for you to get a chance to hear this conversation with Sergio Zyman. I've been spending days reading about you and all these corollary stories. And my husband calls you the most interesting man alive. He told me not to fall in love with you 
over this interview. So please do, please do. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. So Sergio, in the introduction to the show, I'm going to say all kinds of nice things about you, about all of your international bestseller books, how you were the CMO for Coke that unveiled things like the Cherry Coke and Diet Coke, and about how Time Magazine named you one of the top marketing pitchmen of the 20th century. But today I wanted to talk about, I don't know, maybe a difficult topic, which is new Coke. My hypothesis is that there's a lot more to this story than most people know. I will talk to you and, you know, we'll see how it goes. So in some places, you're credited with coming up with the idea for new Coke. Was it your idea? Yeah, but I think there is a little bit of background, which sure. I think is perfect, right? So the Coca-Cola company was a distribution and finance company for years and years. And it basically grew by giving people who wanted a franchise as long as they were in what was called a white territory. I mean, you know, they had nothing franchised, uh, the chance to, uh, to get a franchise. And it was like a car dealership, right? I mean, you kind of did it and you made money and you became a very important person in the community. And then, you know, and then you pass it on to your kids. Your kids then uh, decided they didn't only want it to be a Coke bottler. They wanted to be something else. They started diversifying. The business lost its interest. Uh, and then uh, the company was plugging along, pretty much growing through distribution. Very, very paternalistic company a company where belonging was more important than performing, right? Because everybody protected themselves uh, from each other. And, and, and that was part of the culture of the company. And growth and progress was not necessary because as long as you continue to open up new territories, you continue to grow. Uh, the company had a, a contract in perpetuity with the bottlers where the company couldn't raise its price for the concentrate except for CPI, and that was kind of anarchical in many, in many ways. Uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, this little competitor for the company, Puputo, the time called Pepsi, decided that they were going to become the marketing director for the Coca-Cola company. Uh, and they started by coming up with a puppies commercial that basically talked about the choice of the, the Pepsi generation. And the Pepsi generation basically claimed that the youth and the people of the future drank Pepsi, and by design, like in politics, uh, they positioned the competition, right? So not only they were positioning themselves, but they were saying, you know, Coke is for all people. And when that started happening, of course, the growth for both Coke and Pepsi grew because you had a lot of impressions in the market uh, and, you know, and the company then got, uh, you know, kind of confused thinking that they were growing while in reality, Pepsi was stealing its future. Uh, soon after that, Pepsi came out with another little thing that the company fought against a little agency, local agency in Dallas came out with the Pepsi challenge and the Pepsi challenge said, by the way, uh, all what Pepsi was trying to do was to make Pepsi as good as Coke, not better than Coke, because Pepsi was not acceptable. You, weren't, you didn't want it to be seen drinking a Pepsi. They used to say that Pepsi, uh, that Coke you drank in the living room and Pepsi you drank in the kitchen. And they came up with this thing when they actually got a bunch of Coke people or what look at Coke people, people be, you know, with those beehive uh, 
uh, hairdos and and they took the Pepsi challenge. And, you know, pretty much they kept on testing until they got people who chose Pepsi by, by design. And Pepsi was a sweeter product. And again, the company really started losing, uh, you know, share of value. Uh, I had been working uh, for, I mean, I worked for Procter & Gamble and then I worked for the ad agency at Coke. And I was really frustrated, right? Because the company really was not interested in making any change. Then Pepsi hired me to go to Brazil as, uh, as head of marketing for Brazil. I took the job and then they brought me back to New York uh, and I was head of marketing for brand Pepsi. And then Coke uh, approached me about hiring me and going to work for Coke. And I said to the president of the company, every time rest in peace, Dan Kio, I said, look at me. I mean, I, I'm so not Coke, okay? I'm, I mean, I, uh, he said, well, we really need to effect change. So I took the job for a variety of reasons, and I went down to become executive assistant to the president of the company, only to find that change was something that was not only not accepted at Coke, but it was fought all the time. And I'm a big avid runner. I, you know, I've run a bunch of marathons. And, uh, and when I got to, to Coke, I used to go down to the cafeteria to, to have lunch. And the only thing that you could have was chili dogs, you know? Uh, and uh, so I, in my own brilliance at age 31, or 33, I guess I was at the time, decided to go talk to the, to the uh, operations people. And I finally convinced them to put a salad bar in the cafeteria. And that weekend, my car got scratched. No. I the- <laughs> <laughs> had the shotguns in the back of the car. And the company just did not want to change. Okay? It didn't accept change. It didn't pay. The fundamental problem that the company has, and I'll be done with my preamble here. You can cut it up. No, this want. is so great. Uh, was the company's positioning claiming that Coke was kind of, there was a guy there who was a pseudo-marketing guy at corporate who really believed that Coke was one thing only. And you couldn't, you couldn't extend it to another brand. You couldn't do anything. And the advertising agency, McCann Erickson, had the company so controlled that they decided where the position of the brand was. And I started challenging the agency saying, by the way, we really need to claim why we're number one, right? I mean, why are we actually, I mean, there wouldn't be a number one if people didn't, and boy, I mean, they tried to kill me. They eventually called me the Ayacola, you know? <laughs> uh, and they figured out that I was out to destroy Madison Avenue. I was, I was just trying to protect what I was there to do. Uh, you know, finally, we kept on having the argument and, uh, and then at one point in time, we had this meeting, you know, with the president of the company. And I said, look, I think we got to change the positioning of the brand. I think we got to broaden it. Absolutely nobody wanted to hear anything about it. And then somebody in the meeting said, we can make a better product than Pepsi. And I said, maybe that's what we had to do. Maybe we got to come up with a modified brand that will then appeal to consumers. My only intent at the time was to reposition the brand. I mean, I really didn't think that the company was going to go through with a formula change. You know, the formula is secretly guarded. You know, there are a number of ingredients. Nobody really knows the totality of the formula. Well, a few people do. 
I mean, it's amazing that you say that nobody knows. That's crazy. Well, but they, I mean, some people do. Uh, the totality of the formula, you have one guy that mixes ingredient A and he travels around the world and walks into this room and puts ingredient A, leaves, and there's another guy that comes in and puts ingredient B. And then there is a secret ingredient called 7X, you know, which is added to the concentrate. And then the thing is put together, kind of all that. And the, I mean, the formula is at a vault at Trust Company Bank in Atlanta. Uh, and then eventually we came out with a product, but then consistent with the way the company worked it, the research guys only provided the information to me and to the chairman of the company. That's it. Uh, and, you know, we kept on testing the product monadically. I kept on saying that we, we needed to do triangulations and the rest of the stuff. And eventually we came out with a product that by all means ended up being a sweeter product. Uh, that formula, that actually new, uh, the new Coke formula ended up being the formula for Diet Coke eventually, you know. Uh, and, uh, and then we got to the point in which everybody got worked up into a frenzy about the fact that we're going to do this thing. Uh, we had a, a, a committee that kind of was supervising me as we were doing the work and the rest of the stuff. And then we got to the famous day a week before, you know, April 15, 85. We we're going to announce the thing with Ray Charles, Ray Charles and all the butlers at this meeting. And they went around the room and said, you agree? This is the thing to do. And they came to me. You agree? I was a project manager. And I said, no, I don't think we should. I think we actually should look at the position of the brand. And then, of course, everybody said, ah, <laughs> no, not really. And off we went. And we changed the brand. Okay, so just to clarify, the reason that you even went down the new Coke rabbit hole is because the company was so unwilling to look at or change the core branding of the organization, right? Right. And they said, here, you can play with this. You can, you can come up with a new thing that we find non-threatening and you can play with that. You know, I, I think that the, the, the thing about it is that at some point in time, Finally, I got the dialogue going to the fact that we needed to do something because Pepsi was stealing our future, right? And the options of changing the brand positioning that was so guarded by the then, the then president of the company and then the head of marketing, who really wasn't a marketing guy, he was an ad guy who was in love with McKen Erickson and, and all the, the you know, behind-the-scenes lobbying by the agency about leaving the positioning of the brand, you know, we're talking about have a Coke and a smile, you know, kind of really blame, you know, positioning for the brand. And then kept on basically throwing darts, saying, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And eventually we said, I mean, it got it appealed to the ego of the company, but the fact that they believed that they were the greatest chemist in the world, they could come up with a product that was better. And we went. So... What did they think was going to happen with the launch of New Coke versus what actually happened? Well, I mean, the idea was that we were going to announce the arrival of a, of a better product and the consumer was going to go drink it and they were going to be ecstatic and they were going to sell gazillions of, of bottles all over the world of this thing. And the, the, what happened was that the most important insight, okay, is that if I tell you 
what does Coke taste like? What would you tell me? It's sweet and bubbly. Is that what you would say? Yeah. Yeah, most likely, 90% of your people will say it tastes like Coke. (laughs) And the reason why is because there is no taste memory on Coke. It doesn't taste like anything that you can relate to. It's like when you drink a, a glass of really good red wine and people say, yeah, it has berries and uh, a leather and, and, you know, and a barn taste. and all You can't stuff taste any of those coke. things in Coke, right? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing, right? Right. So you went to people and you said, by the way, here is a product that tastes better than. They said, but I, I don't know how it tasted the first time. So how can it be better? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like suddenly you came around, Taco Bell did it actually at one point in time. And I said, here is a better taco. And you kind of said, well, I don't know how to judge. So there were two things that happened. We were manning, there were two press conferences on, on April 15th. One was manned by the chairman and the president in New York, and one was manned in Atlanta. And I had hired a bunch of political consultants to help me understand the dynamics. I hired a guy who was brilliant. He passed last year, Pat Cadell, who was the guy that actually elected Jimmy Carter. And Pat had a, a way to research uh, consumers to make sure that they understood motivation. Because, I mean, you can say all day, I really like Joe Biden or I really hate Trump, but the question is, are you going to vote or not? What is purchasing tip? And Pat and I were sitting with another couple of guys in the auditorium at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, and a reporter said to Gosueta, to the chairman, what if it doesn't work? And he said, you don't understand, it will. And this reporter just went and said, arrogant, blah, 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 blah. And within three days, 85% of the people in America had tasted new Coke, and 80% of those people didn't like it. <laughs> only, we only had 8% distribution. So the product wasn't even in the market, but the media took it over, right? And then people started opining about it without even having tasted the product. And the thing just went crazy, you know? There were groups in Seattle, you know, uh, bring Coke, bring new Coke. We had, had, I mean, we had planes with banners, you know, flying on the building saying, you guys are jerks. Uh, you couldn't go through security at the airport with a Coke tag. People would start harassing you. Uh, and, you know, and the company wouldn't accept that the thing was a mistake. Uh, and... Uh, I was on an airplane going to, to New York. I had to drop the president of the company in Chicago on a company plane, and he turned around to me, and he said, are you doing something? I said, yes, sir. But we couldn't talk about it because it was material, right? Uh, you know, it influenced the price of the stock if we said anything. And I started working like two weeks later on bringing back Coke uh, without anybody knowing. Uh, and then that's a whole different story. About sure. It, you know? In 77 days later, we brought it back. In the interim, in those 77 days, the company stock price doubled, you know, uh, and then volume went through the roof, you know, after we brought back Classic. And again, when we announced Classic, 77 days later, a week later, 80% of the people were drinking new Coke. 
and saying, oh, I'm glad it's back. I love this product. And we're going to do <laughs> so why um, in the room a week before launch did you say I don't think we should launch? Because I, I still believe that the company was not approach, approaching the business the way they should have, right? I mean, look, I mean, that has been my, uh, you know, I, I was born in Mexico and I, I worked in Japan and in Brazil and everywhere else. And I figured out that, that the only way I was going to be able to compete is by doing by trying to understand the dynamics of consumer, I've always been the representative of the consumer. That's what my, my banner is. What is the consumer going to do? You don't make money by being loved. You make money by selling products. And I really believe that the company needed to change its culture. Uh, the company needed to start becoming much more commercial. And it wasn't commercial. And I didn't think that it was necessary for us to change the product. I think I thought that that we could, what we needed to do things in order to position ourselves and define the competition in general. And, uh, and that's why I said no. And how did you not get fired? <laughs> in a company that doesn't like change, where they said, okay, we'll try this one new thing, and it bombed so horribly. H how did you survive that? Uh, you know, the company didn't, uh, nobody got credit, right, for anything. I mean, it was all we the people, right? I mean, and um, so, it, you know, it, it wasn't, nobody was to blame. I mean, the bottlers blame me, okay? And they hated me, you know, with a passion. Because, I mean, they got, I mean, remember, you're going to the country club and suddenly your friends are making fun of you because you didn't your coat. Uh, but the company, you know, basically kind of went along, kind of saying, you got to do what we need to do. We got to fix the things. They figured out that I had more, more arrows, you know, to fire, and I did. And this happened in 85, and I stayed at the company until 88, and then I quit. And I quit. No kidding, I quit. And I, and, and I can tell you why I quit, you know. But, uh, and, you know, then, you know, I mean, we had brought in Diet Coke, you know, as well into the market. And the company fought me about, about Diet Coke. I mean, I, I almost got fired for Diet Coke. You know, because the company wouldn't want to do it, you know. Uh, and until Sueta became chairman, you know, Diet Coke was not in the cards. Well, I want to talk about the lessons learned from the new Coke launch. And I like to talk about it in different kinds of categories. But I'll, I'll just start with a blanket question. What, what were some of the lessons that you learned from that launch that you then took uh, to help you the rest of your career? Well... You know, I think that the number one thing was that my, my audience was inside, not outside, right? I mean, that, you know, in a lot of places, in a lot of companies, the biggest enemy is management, right? I mean, you go back, you know, and you look today at the guys that are innovating, all these entrepreneurs, you know, the day that they get their Series A funding, they develop a hearing problem. They start listening, right? I mean, suddenly, you know... I think that the biggest handicap is, is the fact that people, you know, you got you to deal with management. You know, you got to basically give the ability. When I, I had a 125 people consulting company that in three years I took from zero to $75 million in revenue. And I knew that not only did I have to convince the consumers about what to do, but the more important thing is I, I had to deal with the CEO. 
who, if the CEO did not understand how they made money and why their business was doing what they're doing, it was a lost cause. You know, it wasn't about a new program or whatever it is. And, you know, and it was all about people. You know, I think when, when I went back, when Goizueta called me back five years later to come back to become the first ever chief marketing officer of any company, I invented the title. And I can tell you why. Uh, you know, I realized very quickly, 60 days into the business, into my job, I was now the number five guy at the company, which was absurd, right? You know, here's a Mexican guy with an accent and long hair who drives a convertible, right, at the almighty Coca-Cola company. And... I was running and I figured out that the reason that the company wasn't progressing is the company wasn't making decisions. So I started saying, look, bring me what you want to know. If I tell you yes, go get it done. If it doesn't work, don't worry about it. We'll correct it. If I tell you no, don't you ever come back again. And the business started booming. I mean, we started growing double digits. And then I started running. I was running one day. I said, oh my God, I don't have the people to get it done. So I went to Goizueta and I said, look, let me hire 10 people. He said, for what jobs? I said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take me some time to go hire these people. And Goizueta, who was really smart in that regard, said, hire 20. So I went and I started hiring people, you know, and eventually I hired 2,000 people around the world to change the company. It was all about people. It's not about, look, I mean, you can give me credit for new Coke and Diet Coke and Cherry Coke and anything you want. The only thing I did is hire really smart people who had a lot of ideas and give them the freedom to go get stuff done. And then, you know, creating systems, getting the company uh, to understand that it was all about selling more stuff to more people more often for more money. You know, that was the business. Uh, and, uh, and that's what gave me the, uh, the ability to then go back to, com- to the company we quadruple volume. We took volume from 8 billion cases to 15 billion cases in three years. We quadrupled the, uh, the price of the stock in three years. You know, we were doing spectacularly well and then we sweat dollars on us, you know? And then the new guys screwed up, you know? And that they happens. Didn't rec- yeah, you know, I mean. So that's what I learned. And, and I learned that you got to be thinking about, about the world kind of ahead of the world, that you gotta, you got to be thinking of alternative uh, strategies because somebody's going to copy you tomorrow, right? And, I mean, you look at what we're going through right now, it's horrific, right? But the acceleration of existing trends that are happening right now, the destruction of legacy behaviors and legacy systems is unbelievable. And people are still fighting. You know, when I was on the board of the Gap, you know, they hired, Walmart hired away this woman who was the head of Banana Republic to go create an internet-based commerce. This is 1990, you know, uh, 30 years ago. Now the Walmart is pushed into having to do technology, right? And, but still, you go to the store to pick up your stuff and you got to pick it up inside the store in the back of the store. They don't buy it, okay? Because their culture is about retail, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of the CEO of Microsoft say that, you know, in the last two months, we've accelerated technology innovation and use by two years. And now it's going to become geometric. So I learned that, that looking at consumer behavior is really the key to understanding success. 
And that's what I've done. And I've done really well with it. Do you think New Coke was uh, the biggest failure during your time there? Or were there some others that people don't usually talk about? I think New Coke was a fantastic success. Yeah? Why do you say that? Look, the company changed its views about risk, right? Uh, the stock price, you know, doubled in 77 days. Uh, there was an, I mean, we repositioned brand Coca-Cola after that, you know, with classic. Uh, we got away from entertaining people. We went into, into selling stuff. Uh, you know, we challenged uh, a lot of the sponsorships that we had. We, we became less worried about what Pepsi was going to do and more important about what we were going to do. Um, and we were able to bring in a, a, a mindset to the company about the fact that you could actually take risks, which the company had zero risk tolerance before. So from that vantage point, it was a massive success. Look, here we are, okay? Here we are, July 14, 2020, and we're still talking about Nuco, right? Yeah. Uh, nobody talks about Classic, right? I mean, Classic was, I mean, having the guts to go in and do this thing. Look, I had the graphic designers meet me at the top of a hotel in Monte Carlo in order to be able to hide you know, from these people, you know, we recorded a commercial and, you know, we were called by, by, by the, by the stock market to tell us there was a leak that we were going to change the product. And, you know, we, we recorded the commercial in a studio in New Jersey. And then we flew, we hired helicopters to fly the commercial over so we could be on the seven o'clock news. And Peter Jennings opened the seven o'clock news saying, you know, is this big news? Let me tell you, we're opening up the 7 o'clock news to, uh, to announce that a soft drink is coming back. I think that the lessons learned about the intelligent risk-taking that New Coke did were huge. Anybody who opens their mind and really looks at it for what it was, look, I was able to work on bringing the one back in 77 days, Okay. And trust me, a lot of people were fighting me inside the company were bringing it back. Let's tough it out. And I said, man, there's no toughing up. We have too many people against us, okay? We're not in control of the dialogue. We got to go get it done. So I think it was a huge success. I mean, look at me right here. Let me show you something. So I'm sure you've seen this fortune yeah. over a fortune, right? So when Sweta called me to come to the company back, you know, and the cover and fortune put me on the cover, right? Uh, I went on to come back to the company and did a great job, I think, with a lot of people. Uh, and it was all on the grounds of, you know, of the fact that we actually were able to do things that were not traditional. Uh, and I think that you can have a hundred examples of people who have done non-traditional things smartly, not stupidly, not from an ego perspective. Uh, and so I think I consider it to be a huge success. Well, let's talk about ego real quick. This is my last question on lessons learned, but you were able, so I read in 12 days, you assembled a team to get rid of new Coke and, and come up with Coca-Cola classic. A lot of people research shows when something is not working, will say, just like you heard people say, let's tough it out. And they call it escalating their commitment to something that's not working how were you able to say like, oh, we should stop this immediately? And 
because it to a lot of people it feels like admitting an even bigger loss. Look, I I think that you know in 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 real estate. I mean, I'm sorry. In uh, in PR crises, people always say, "Tell the truth, tell it all, and tell it quick." Right? I mean, that's the answer. Right? Uh, look at Tylenol. Um, look, we had my assessment of what was going on, talking with my advisors, which political consultants, by the way. Uh, remember, those guys understand that Tuesday in, in November. If you don't get elected, you know, you go home. Right? right? Um, we just had too many people against us. It didn't make any difference what we did. You know, we had the press. We had a bunch of organizations that had sprouted. Uh, you know, it, it was just impossible to recall. Uh, and once I discovered, and that's a story for another day, that that it, that the case had no, you know, no way to actually prove it. There was no way I could actually convince everybody, anybody, that this was better for them. That this is going to make at the end of the day. This is going to shock you, but the whole world could go on living without drinking another Coke for the rest <laughs> of the house. Everything will be fine. Yeah. No. I, I just, I, there was no way to win, you know? And, uh, and once I figured that one out, I figured that, you know, cut your losses, move on. Well, you've mentioned um, how Coca-Cola had everything it needed to be successful, and yet it chose this new product development. You actually wrote a book around this topic uh, that you called Renovate Before You Innovate. Can you kind of share the concept of the book? Because I, I think it's fascinating. You know, look, uh, innovation is a lazy, um, you know, action by companies, right? I mean, you kind of give up on your main brand, right? You declare that the brand cannot grow anymore, and then you're now going to go on and you're going to kind of start innovating. I, I had been in a, in a meeting uh, at Unilever, an innovation meeting out in uh, someplace in Europe, I can't remember. And boy, I mean, we had, they had this convention center with all the innovation they were going to do. And I walked around all day long and I didn't see any innovation in their existing methods and systems. It was all about new stuff, right? So I was kind of saying, well, where are you? And I started asking these guys, I said, by the way, you guys sell a bunch of refrigerated products. Are you guys doing innovation in refrigeration? You know, to try to figure out a way to get into, I mean, you have a limited amount of space in our supermarket, you know, in the number of refrigerated feet that you have. And nobody was trying to renovate what they were doing. And then I read an article uh, about the Scala, La Scala in Milan. And I read the newspapers a lot, and I still like paper newspaper because I like kind of the, the smell of it, I guess, in the morning with my, with my coffee. And, I, um, and the mayor of Milan wanted to go renovate the Scala. And of course, imagine all the aficionados of opera around the world and all that, I mean, basically said, no, we can do that, and defeated the thing. So he went and, and basically raised money privately, closed the Scala, and renovated it. And then when the Scala opened, 
he invited dignitaries from all over the world, you know, all the great opera singers were and all that. And they walked into the place and it looked exactly the same. <laughs> Except that the chairs were a little bit wider. The curtains went up and down without breaking. The toilets flushed, <laughs> right? The entrances were made a little bit wider, okay? And he preserved the essence of the Scala in Milan. And that was the, 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 the thing about saying, let's first renovate what we have. Let's make sure that we provide new reasons and new things for people to buy the stuff that you have. And then, if you then want to launch something totally new, go at it. But a new product is inefficient. A new product costs a lot of money. A renovated product capitalizes on all the equity and the goodwill of a product and then makes it more profitable. And that was the essence of why Renovate for You know, I couldn't agree more. I think that people are desperate and so they turn to innovation. And my favorite company that's been able to make such a splash and, and prove this point is Domino's Pizza. And their stock um, has gone from uh, $350 a share in 2010 to over $300 a share now. And my favorite thing to say is like, they don't sell anything other than pizza. No, they don't sell pizza. <laughs> Tell me. They sell 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> you know, and by the way, you're 100% right. You're so smart in looking at this company because when Domino's came out, what they said, here's mom who hates to cook, right? And, you know, and, I, and suddenly, you know, Joy and Mary come in and says, hey, our friends are here and they stay for dinner. And she goes, oh, my God. What Domino's promised at the beginning was 30 minutes or less, right? So what they delivered was the solution to a meal. And then they lost it. They went into product development. I started doing the extra cross and all that. And they, now they went back to basically doing the same thing. I, funny enough, I watched a commercial last night for them. Now they're doing contactless, you know, uh, pickup, right? And, and look, it's utilizing modernity in order to update your system. So now you can open up your trunk from inside your car. It goes up like that. And then the guy comes in, pushes the little button, and the thing closes, and you have the two pieces going in the back, right? Brilliant. Brilliant. Right? Catching up with the times, utilizing new behaviors, and updating your thing. But you know? so many companies think they have to come up with a new taco or something completely different. I read that you worked on shrimp farming at Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, they think that they have to go in those directions as opposed to what I often refer to as the long, low-hanging fruit. There's like so much, so many ways to make money with your existing products. Well, you know, look, I was on the board of the guy, right? And... Mickey Drexler, you know, who is considered to be kind of the dean of retail, believed only in product. He didn't believe in marketing. He didn't believe in anything. And then one day, business went to hell. Really bad. So Mickey disappears for about two months. And he, where is Mickey? Mickey's around the world walking the streets looking for what's new in fashion. <laughs> so we have a board meeting when Mickey comes back. And I go in and I say, I think we need to run a piece of research to try to understand what consumers are knowing. So then one of the people stands up and talks about incidents. And I said, what is that? Says, well, it's the amount of people that actually buy when they come into the store. 
So the number was like in the 20s. I said, wait, wait, are you telling me that a hundred people that you're able to get in the store are only 20 buy? Yeah, yeah. I said, why is that? No answer. So finally, they have to give in. And they're giving me, and we run a piece of research. So the research comes back, and they're all kind of smart walk in to try to figure out they learn nothing. I said, can I have the research? So I find a little thing in it that says that the reason people don't buy is on friendly dressing rooms. So I go back to the meeting, and I said, by the way, you guys see this? I said, yeah, it sometimes takes a long time. And I said, by the way, how was the gap created? Where it was created on falling to the gap. The fishers found out that they couldn't, that the size 34 pin that Don Fisher needed was a different set. So they had 34 big, 34 long, 34 wide, and all that stuff. So the core essence of the gap was trying the clothes. If you couldn't try the clothes, you were not going to buy. Fast forward how many years today? If you want to buy something from the gap, you got to try the clothes, right? So if you try the clothes, they charge you money to return the clothes. They're going to be out of business. Amazon, Amazon uh, ships you the clothes. Amazon wardrobe sends you a box of clothes. You try whatever you want, and you ship it back for free. So how do you innovate? How do you renovate the way people buy in order to be able to do this stuff? So that's the essence of it. That's the core of the book. No, uh, it's... Uh it's right on. Why do you think, because you've had a lot of time inside all these companies. So I think um, dressing rooms that don't fit, pizza that tastes bad. These are all blind spots that companies have about their existing service line. Why do you think that they're much more willing to just like spend money on something new and shiny than be honest about all of these tension points that they have with their existing customers? But as long as you believe that your customer is the key to your business, right? It doesn't make any difference how you, how you make this stuff. The only makes a difference if somebody buys your stuff, right? I mean, we have Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you have Chick-fil-A where you yeah. are. We have Chick-fil-A 48 hours after the city closed. These guys had the drive-through and the app and the everything else going, and they are killing it, right? Everybody else was still fighting it. Everybody was still talking about drive-through and ordering and all that stuff, you got to adapt. You got to change the way you do business based on the way people buy. And if you do that, you'll succeed. Well, I have one last question. I'm nervous to ask it. As an entrepreneur, I used to have this saying, and I would love your feedback on it, which is marketing is a penalty that you pay for creating a product that doesn't solve a problem. Well, marketing is too important to be left to the marketing people. Marketing is what you do, right? Marketing is, I mean, people, when people say, what were, what were you? I would cheap marketing also say, oh, I love your commercial. I say, I didn't do commercial. <laughs> I had an advertising director who did commercials. I was in charge of growing the business. You know, when Roberto asked me to come back to the company, I said, sir, seriously, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I do a lot of stuff you don't like. That's why I left. And he said, I said, what do we want to do? He said, I want you to be the marketing guy. I said, don't understand. He said, you know, the marketing thing. He had a very short fuse. And I didn't want the job because, I mean, I, think, I mean, I, they were paying me as a consultant and they didn't pay any attention to what I said. And I had all the time in the world. I was skiing 60 days a year. And then he says, okay, so what do you want to do? I said, I want to be in charge of growth. 
he said, do you want everybody to work for you? I said, I don't want anybody. But I mean, if you are committed to growing the business profitably, I'm interested. And I think marketing is about profitable growth. That's what marketing is. You need to find a way to have people buy yours versus buying yours. I mean, look, politics is critical, right? Politicians stand in front of you and say, by the way, I'd like to be your whatever, you know, your governor or your, your senator or your president or whatever it is. And then they say, I share your concerns, right? And then they go ask you what your concerns are, okay? Because that's the only way they're going to be able to solve the problems. And I think that it's not a penalty, but it's understanding that connecting with whoever you want to connect you have to understand what's important to them. And if you don't, you won't connect. Yeah. And you have to spend a lot more on advertisements. Well, but I mean, you don't even, I mean, look, I believe that the most successful companies don't spend any money. You know, I mean, look, I, I think that you have great products that are the models of, of good marketing. I mean, look at, you know, Kappa Soup. Hey, you don't have to be a real genius to know. <laughs> but if Kappa Soup starts developing mixes in jars, they're done, right? Watch them call it, right, as a, as a thing. I mean, you look at companies, people say to me, which companies do you admire? Look, I think Amazon is lava, okay? I mean, they just keep on burning everything inside. And Bezos is brilliant about the way he does it. Not only does he tell us, what we do, but he tells us what to do, both, right? And he develops models that facilitate my life. I, you know, they're not a burden in my life. They're a facilitator in my life. Ah, those are the companies. I mean, look, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, when they first came out, they used to deliver the car because who they wanted is they wanted the housewife whose car broke. They didn't want to compete with Hertz and Avis. Now, who's out of business? Hertz and Avis. Right? I mean, look at all those companies that actually innovated in the way, by, by, you know, by renovating their models, right, and doing marketing in a smart way. I mean, I think that's another misnomer. People don't understand what marketing is. That's why I wrote The End of Marketing as we know it. <laughs> and by the way, I have a book, which I'm not going to publish because publishing today is horrific, which is, you know, pretty much the end of everything as we know it, disregard all previous instructions. Everything you know is up in the air. You know, even if it goes back to being the way it was, it's different, you know? So, you know, we'll see. Is that just a, a book to cause us all to go into depression or do you have any solutions? Oh, I have, I, I always have solutions. <laughs> if you read my book, I always have solutions. Not a lot of people, but look, I still, I mean, my book was published, you know, in, in you know, 40 languages around the world, right? And, and I still go to do speeches and people walk in with the little yellow markers and stuff like that and all that. And then I said to them, so why did you implement out of the things that were in the book? Well, my boss wouldn't let me, right? It's, you know, uh, so, I mean, I wrote, I published in 99, the end of marketing as we know it. And I get there. I think that we're still where we were. I don't think there's been enough evolution, you know, in, in what goes on. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing about being able to see... The future. I mean, the future The future is looking at you saying, right. <laughs> I mean, come on, watch me, and then we look the other way, right? Look, change is inevitable, right? Regardless of what you want, at the end of this hour, you're an hour older than you were an hour ago. 
There's nothing you can do about it, right? If you don't deal with it, and if you don't internalize it, then you're just cheating yourself, right? I mean, I think that is the thing that you, uh, you know, you got to do. I mean, you know, I, people laugh at me at, at the beginning of this thing. I start, you know, buying food and hurting it and all that stuff. And I said, by the way, I don't know where this thing is going to go. Right. Uh, you know, crisis management, right? I mean, get ready. I mean, worst case scenario, you throw it away. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're not going to see... We're not going to see the world the world it was. This is a this is a seminal change. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. This has been. I have one question for you. Yeah. Though. So, of everything that we talked about, of everything I've said, what is the one thing you go, oh, good or bad? That you can't leave marketing to the marketers. Cool. All right. That's my favorite thing that you said during this interview. Uh, but my favorite thing that I read about you is a tie between the the book on reinvention um, because it's such a powerful concept that most organizations ignore still like it's still the biggest source of revenue for most companies potential that they ignore um, and the fact that 12 days after new coke launched you were ready to you know this one thing that they let you do you were ready to shut it down and that that's incredible. Good. So was your husband right? <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. I'm going to yeah. follow up. I'm going to try to get you to write a book with me. I mean, you're stuck with me for, for a while. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you came away with just as much of, an, oh my God, that's a very different story than the one that I thought that I knew. And, you know, it just reminds me that entrepreneurship and innovation is a lot like professional poker. You're guaranteed to lose certain hands, but it's how you take those losses. It's whether you don't lose all of your money in the process of the loss, whether you can rebound quickly and adjust in the moment that actually decides whether you get to keep playing long term. And I so enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too. I'm Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower. And not every story that you think you might know is actually what happened. So go explore something you think you know today. 